I'm excited to continue this series on the Ten Commandments. This week we look at the Sixth Commandment, You Shall Not Murder, from Exodus 20, verse 13. So join me on this episode of the Methodical Methodist Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Methodical Methodist Podcast, a podcast where we talk about why the church is still relevant for us today as we explore themes connected to religion, politics, pop culture, faith, and yes, even the church. Together we can find out what it means to live into the mission of the church by making disciples. Now, let's get methodical. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder, is a commandment that many people say is the easiest to keep. Sure, there are times when we don't keep the Sabbath, there are times when we fail to honor our parents, but you shall not murder is really a a pretty easy commandment for most people to follow through with. However, if we look at this commandment a little closer, then we begin to see some lines that are blurred. Some translations say, you shall not kill. Other translations say you shall not murder. The original Hebrew does not say do not kill. It says do not murder. And I think those are are two different things. The word kill implies taking any life, human, animal, even an insect. You know, we hire exterminators that kill fire ants and and bugs. We, We kill and we eat animals. So as a society, we have agreed that it is okay to kill certain things. But murder... Murder is different. Murder only means one thing. The illegal or immoral act of taking a human life. That is why we don't say that we murder fire ants. Murder only applies the taking of a human life. And even then, the term murder is blurred. Looking through commentaries, I was amazed to see the various arguments being made about what is and is not considered murder. If it's intentional or premeditated, if it's an accident or in self-defense, scholars get together and they parse verbs and look at different interpretations. And and I think all of these are important questions, but I think if, if you get too bogged down in those arguments, then we miss something crucial. And that is that that human life is a sacred thing. So so what does this commandment really mean? Where do we draw the lines? If the lines aren't already blurred enough, just wait until we look at what Jesus has to say on the matter. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, says this, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out 
until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus comes along and he says this in Matthew chapter 5 and he completely changes the argument on what it means to commit murder. Jesus tells us that even being angry at someone is somehow linked to murder. All of a sudden, the distinction between murder and kill seems to matter much less. Because Jesus says that anger can destroy relationships much like murder. Jesus goes on to say that even insulting someone will make you liable to hell of fire. Christ essentially points out that you can murder with your words. In his book, The Surrender and the Singing, Ray Ashford writes this, I once watched a man murder a beautiful and intelligent woman. It wasn't, mind you, a crime of passion in which he took her life with a knife or a gun in a single explosive moment of blinding rage. It was rather a crime absolutely devoid of passion, a murder within the law, and over a long period of time, four and a half decades. It was murder by indifference and neglect. This commandment, I think, forces us to look at our own thoughts and motives and our own hearts. Because as this story illustrates, we can kill someone's spirit. We can be guilty of breaking this commandment without actually committing the act of murder. Life is a precious gift from God, and I think we forget that sometimes. One of my favorite things to watch on television are crime dramas. I especially like uh, British crime dramas, like uh, Broadchurch, Wallander, Luther, Sherlock. But our culture is saturated with shows like this, shows about death. There are so many shows that we couldn't possibly mention them all. One of my pastors growing up was a man named Drew Henry. And I remember one particular sermon when he talked about the topic of murder. And he said, the first time a young child sees someone killed on television, it's jarring. It's upsetting. The child has trouble sleeping that night because a human life being taken away is a horrible thing. And then the second time they see it on television, it's still shocking. But it's not as bad as the first time. And, And then eventually that child can watch someone getting killed on television and not even bat an eye. God is the author of life, and human life is sacred. And that's something that I think we need to be reminded of from time to time, especially in this age of social media where you can look at things all over the internet and and get really frustrated with other people that maybe don't look like you or act like you or think like you. And it causes us to tend to dehumanize them. I like what Will Willimon and Stanley Harawas have to say about this act of, of murder. They say, when we take a life for any reason, we put ourselves in the place of God. We steal something that God created and that God owns. Uh, another pastor, Adam Hamilton, puts it this way. God has the power to stop our heart from beating when it's our time. God doesn't need our help in the process. We see examples of of people breaking this commandment everywhere. The news, 
share story after story of murder and violence. We, we think of extreme examples in history like Nazi Germany, uh, ethnic cleansing in Bosnia, and genocide in Rwanda. We've seen a lot of recent examples of this in the Black Lives Matter movement where we see innocent black people being killed by the police. And, and we see numerous examples of this in the Bible. One of the four, first stories that we have in the Bible is the story of Cain and Abel. It's the story of two brothers. Cain is a farmer who offers God a portion of his crop as a sacrifice to God. And Abel is a shepherd, and he offers an animal sacrifice to God. And, and we're told that God, for whatever reason, is pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but he's not pleased with Cain's sacrifice. So out of jealousy and anger, Cain kills his brother Abel. And this is the first recorded murder in the Bible. It's not the last, but it's definitely the first. Perhaps the most significant murder case in the Bible is the murder of Jesus. The Pharisees and the religious leaders call for Jesus to be crucified. And Jesus is arrested, he's mocked, he's beaten, and then eventually killed on a cross. But it's interesting to see how Jesus chooses to handle this situation. Leading up to this event, Jesus responds with peace rather than violence. Jesus has the courage to advocate for peace, even though he knew what was going to happen to him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the very embodiment of Jesus as a peacemaker. One of his disciples, Peter, cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest in a fit of violence and rebellion. He's not willing to stand by while Jesus is arrested. He, he has to respond, and his impulse is to respond in violence. But Jesus sees this happen, and he says, Put away your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Jesus is not willing to let any blood other than his be shed. He is basically saying, If you're going to be my disciple, then you can no longer respond in violence. If anyone ever had the right to respond in violence, it was at this moment. I mean, think about it. Jesus was defending the Messiah, but Jesus tells him to avoid violence, and instead he encourages him to find peace. As one scholar says, in the cross of Christ, Christians are brought into a peaceful world where we are not forced to sustain our lives by killing. And so as we think about this commandment, we can ask the question, how can we find peace with one another? There's a story about a young monk in the year 402 AD. And he felt this call to leave his monastery and to journey to Rome. And he didn't know what he would do in Rome, but he just knew that God was calling him to go there. And so this young monk uh, was named Telemachus, and he arrived in Rome on this special day. And there were all kinds of people who were filling the streets. They were all heading to this one common destination. And the monk, not really knowing where they were going, just kind of joins the crowd. He swept along the streets with this crowd. And he eventually finds himself outside the great Colosseum. And so he goes with the crowd into the Colosseum, not knowing what would happen next. And he found a seed, and he, he watched the frenzy grow. And 
And then he saw all of the gladiators come out. And there were these great warriors on the floor of the Colosseum wearing helmets and breastplates, and they had nets and swords and all sorts of weaponry. And Telemachus watched in horror as they pulled their swords and they began this bloody brawl. And he watched for just a moment when suddenly he couldn't take it anymore. He stood up and he called out to the combatants, In the name of Christ, stop! But the Colosseum was too loud, and, and so nobody heard the cries of this young monk. So he jumped up over the railing, and he ran into the middle of the battle. And again, he shouted out to the gladiators, In the name of Christ, stop! And they did. They couldn't believe that this little monk was out there in the middle of all of these warriors. But this pause only lasted for a minute or two until one of the gladiators swung his sword towards this monk, Telemachus. The others grabbed their swords and began to chase this young monk, and he found himself kind of running just, just to stay alive. But all the while, he continued to yell out, In the name of Christ, stop! And then, all of a sudden, they converged. And when that dust settled, this little monk laid there on the floor of the Colosseum with a sword stuck through his chest. A few moments later, one of the men got up and silently walked out from the crowd. Then he was followed by another person in the crowd who left, and then a third person until... Eventually, the entire Colosseum was emptied. The emperor and his guests looked from their box, and they too silently got up and left. And then the gladiators dropped their swords on the floor and walked out one by one. An hour later, the emperor issued a decree that there would no longer be the fights of the gladiators in the Colosseum. There would no longer be spectators watching fights to the death. And the death of Telemachus became the last death of anyone in the gladiator games. It all stopped because of this one monk. Violence was not an option for Telemachus. And it was not an option for Jesus. And, and I know that this is a difficult subject, especially, especially when we think about the Old Testament. Because according to the Jewish law, there are 16 crimes in the Bible that say um, that, that says that it is punishable by death. Some of these laws include disobeying or disrespecting your parents, working on the Sabbath, taking the Lord's name in vain, and committing adultery. There's a great episode of The West Wing that talks about this idea. Uh, the president, Jed Bartlett, is meeting with the Republican nominee for president, Arnie Vinnick. And they're talking about church. And Arnie says, One Christmas my wife gave me a very old edition of the King James Bible, 17th century. It was a real find for a book collector. It was a thrill just to hold it. But then I read it. President Bartlett chuckles and says, Yeah, you know, you, you can't take it literally. And Arnie says, Yeah, that's what my priest friends kept telling me. But the more I read, the less I could believe. I couldn't believe that there was a God that said the penalty for working on the Sabbath was death. I couldn't believe that there was a God who said the penalty for adultery was death. 
President Bartlett responds by saying, well, I'm I'm more of a New Testament guy myself. In light of their conversation, it, it is interesting to see how Jesus chooses to handle the Old Testament law in the New Testament. One story that comes to mind is the story of the woman caught in adultery. According to the Old Testament law, this woman deserved to be stoned to death. Everyone in the crowd who had gathered rocks were prepared to throw their stones at this woman, and they were just following the law. They were doing what the Bible told them to do. But instead of joining them, Jesus comes along and he offers this woman mercy. He doesn't condone her sin, but he argues that everyone in that crowd had sinned too. He says, let the person who is without sin cast the first stone. And no one there was without sin except for Jesus. Jesus was the only one without sin. And yet, he didn't throw any rocks. Instead, he offered mercy. He offered peace. Jesus understood something that we sometimes forget. All of creation is made by God. And when God created human beings, God did this in God's own image. And God called us good. And we don't have the right to kill with our words or with our deeds. We have to be careful that we aren't breaking this commandment even when we just get angry. But it's, it's more than that. It's not just about killing people. It's also about living out our lives to the fullest. It's about enriching the lives of those around us as well. Luther's small catechism talks about this commandment. It says, You are not to kill. We are to fear and love God so that we neither endanger nor harm the lives of our neighbors, but instead help and support them in all of life's needs. John Wesley had three simple rules that he often spoke about. Do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. Keeping this commandment gives us the opportunity to not only do no harm, but it also gives us the chance to go out and do good. In the words of Ellsworth Callus, for a Christian, it isn't enough to say that we've never murdered anyone or even that we rarely kill a small part of some other individual. We must fulfill what must surely have been the essence of this commandment by blessing and enlarging life. In a world where so many quite casually damn, we ought very consciously to bless. We ought, that is, to make life longer, fuller, deeper, more exciting. How might we find ways to make life longer, fuller, deeper, and more exciting for us and for those around us? How can we live life to the fullest? How can we enrich others' lives and help them live their best life? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Methodical Methodist Podcast. If you have enjoyed this show, I hope you might consider heading on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show. It is very much appreciated. And until next time, stay methodical.